be seated. Matters of the heart are the key matters of life, the soul, the internal life. You might remember Jesus, if you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus in Mark chapter 7 saying that it is from within, out of the heart, that evil things come. And Jesus' ministry in bringing and ushering in the kingdom of God and going to the cross and rising from the dead was intended to be a ministry that brought about a genuine renewal of our hearts. When the Old Testament looks forward to the time of God's great acts, it, it talks about that in terms of the circumcision of the heart or of replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The work of God in the world is primarily a work of the inside. It's a work in which he changes us from the inside out. And actually, this is quite hard for us uh, because we're people who focus on the externals. We like to see results. We like to see someone's resume. Show me what you've done. Show me what a difference you've made. Show me what degrees you have, your, your qualifications. Show me your productivity and your accomplishments. And then I can assess who you are and what your worth might be. We're busy looking at what we can see. In fact, if it had been us, we would likely have anointed one of Jesse's other sons to be the king of Israel. Some of you will know that story from 1 Samuel 16 when Jesse brings his sons one by one before the prophet Samuel and thinks, surely this one must be God's anointed. And after he brings all of his sons, Samuel says, well, isn't there anyone else? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one, the youngest out in the fields keeping watch over the flock. And Samuel says, bring him here. And in the course of that, we learn what Samuel teaches us there. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's on the inside that God sees. And this is God's way. This is what matters most to the God of heaven and earth as he's revealed himself to us through the scriptures. And saying this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about social realities or about systems and markets and institutions. He actually cares about these things deeply. And his redemptive work and power is to, intended to touch and heal every dimension of life, including these outward structures and realities that shape and impact so many of our lives and so much of our society and our relationships. But having said that, the godly transformation that God intends to bring in all of creation is something that is the outworking of the transformation of the heart in his people. It's the outworking of what we cannot see. Those outward changes are the fruits and the plants that spring up from the soil of a heart that's been transformed by the mercy and grace and love of God. As we come to Psalm 131, and I would encourage you to grab your Bible. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's actually printed in a different version in the bulletin, so I would encourage you to use the Bible in the pew. I want to ask you this question. Uh, how is your soul this morning? When you strip away all of the externals, when you press pause on the frantic pace of life that we all know and experience in a modern city, when you sideline your ambitions, maybe your anxieties for a moment, and be honest, what, what's going on on the inside? What are the conditions? Consider being on a plane with turbulence. A lot of us have 
done some flying this summer, whereas we probably didn't last summer. My family and I were flying back from Colorado last week to Massachusetts, and things were going along quite smoothly. And then a couple hours into the flight, we hit a patch of turbulent air and got jostled around a bit. The pilot came over the intercom and said the, asked the flight attendants to be seated and to suspend in-flight services. And then the seatbelt sign came on. And it didn't matter if you were reading or sleeping or watching a movie or whatever you were trying to do. It was just hard to do anything else other than just kind of hold on. We made it through the rough patch in about 10 minutes and then things were smooth again. And I know most of you have had that experience as well. So I wonder, inside your soul, is there turbulence or calm? My guess is that for most of us, there's quite a bit of turbulence, actually. It's part of the human experience. But one of the great gifts of the Christian faith and one of the invitations from Jesus, who we worship as king is an invitation out of the turbulence and into calm. That's what our psalm today, Psalm 131, addresses. It's, short, it's three short verses, but they pack a significant punch. Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London, said of Psalm 131, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Indeed. With its picture of trust and humility, this psalm of ascents, which is one of the four psalms of ascents that's attributed to David, shows us that to ascend, we must go low. So I want us to dive into this psalm and its invitation to move out of the turbulence and into the calm. And we're going to look at it in three parts. In verse 1, humility. Verse 2, trust. And verse 3, hope. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's start with humility, verse 1. The opening words of the psalm, David addresses directly to the Lord. This is a prayer. It's an intimate prayer that we're being invited into to listen in on. And they are plainly stated in admission of humility. And I would say, in fact, we should be cautious before we take up the words of this psalm and address them to the Lord himself. Far better to confess our pride than to feign humility before the Lord, a humility that we may not possess. But this is what David does. He professes his humility before God. And he does this in three steps. Oh Lord, one, my heart is not lifted up. Two, my eyes are not raised too high. And three, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. All of these are about pride. But I might suggest that these are about pride, arrogance, and self-assertion. The heart being lifted up, the first thing that he says, is an expression that indicates a sense of being impressed with oneself and one's accomplishments. This is part of our human condition. We, we have this kind of pedigree and so we feel good about ourselves or this kind of professional success or we went further than our peers, we worked harder, we had more successful children, we have more likes on our Instagram than our friends and so on. There's probably not a better example of this heart that is lifted up in Scripture 
than what we read about about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4. He goes out onto his rooftop of his palace and he looks over this city of Babylon and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for my glory and for the glory of my majesty? It's an exalted heart impressed with his own accomplishments or us impressed with our accomplishments believing that these accomplishments are clearly the result of our great effort, our great wisdom, our great gifts that we take credit for. Just after Nebuchadnezzar says that in Daniel chapter 4, there's a voice that comes from heaven and basically says, look, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got it all wrong because there is a most high who rules all the kingdoms of men and gives to whom he will. In other words, there is a far greater one who is over all and he entrusts various responsibilities and endowments to us. And to take pride in what we have accomplished is misplaced and is to forget him. I was reading this week about the James Webb Space Telescope that is soon to be launched into orbit. For all I know, some of you here have worked on this. Uh, it's been 25 years in the making, $10 billion, and worked on by engineers and scientists from 14 countries. And it's going to launch up into orbit, and the hope is that it will see into galaxies far, far, far away. And as I was reading the article, I was reminded just of the vastness of the universe. Scientists estimate two trillion galaxies in the universe. And it's amazing that God knows each one of them. He knows each star within each galaxy by name. He knows each one of you by name. In fact, we read that he knows the number of the hairs on your head. So the folly of Nebuchadnezzar looking out over Babylon is that he forgets that there is a God who looks out over the entire universe of which ancient Babylon, which of course is now wiped off the map, was just one tiny, tiny pinprick. And Nebuchadnezzar takes great delight in his accomplishments, forgetting that there is a God above and over him who can say this about the entire universe. God is so vast and grand and powerful and strong and capable that our pride is foolish before him. We often stand before our Babylons and gaze upon them with a sense of satisfaction and greatness. But it's interesting, not David. David had accomplished much. He had won many battles and war. People had made up songs about him. In his day and age, he was a legendary war hero. He was like a superhero. But he says, before the living God, my heart is not lifted up. I should say that all of these points that we're making today about humility and trust and hope are things that come out of a life that's lived before God, before the living God, a life that's lived in the consciousness of his presence and his power and his being over all that we are. And certainly that's the case here with humility, that a heart, it's really hard for a heart to be lifted up when we're conscious of God and of God's grandeur and power. This leads in verse 1 then this exalted heart leads to eyes that are raised too high. If the exalted heart is a sense of superiority and pride turned inward then eyes raised too high are an outward focus of that pride with that same sense of superiority. There is arrogance. It's looking with envy at all who are above us and looking with contempt at all who we measure to be below us. It is the gaze of comparison and competition and not the gaze of care and compassion. 
And we know what that gaze is like in our sin. Haughty eyes are listed as one of the seven things that are an abomination to the living God in Proverbs chapter 6. And this picture of haughty eyes is probably best portrayed for us in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus tells that story about the Pharisee and the tax collector because the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His eyes were raised so high that he was looking down on everyone else. But you know what the tax collector did? We read there, Jesus says, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. What is it that keeps us from having eyes that are lifted up? What is it that keeps our eyes low? I would suggest to you that it's an awareness of our own sin. That's what drove the tax collector to be unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven. It was the blindness to his own sin that led the Pharisee to look down on everybody else. It's an awareness of our own brokenness. The fact that we've missed the mark, that we're bent and crooked, that we're not really what we were made to be. We might think of ourselves as good people. And we might use the comparison gaze to begin to think better of ourselves. In fact, I think a lot of what we see in our 24-hour news cycle is often a glorying in the falling of someone else. Particularly if they're famous. Because there's a sense in which we can begin to feel better about ourselves when we look at the misery of another or the mistakes or the sins of another. And Jesus knows this about us. You might remember what he said in Matthew chapter 7. He says, why do you focus on the speck in your brother's eye when you cannot even see or are blind to the log in your own eye? It's one of the realities of sin is that we become blind to our own brokenness. When we're looking at other people and we're comparing ourselves to others and we're competing with others, we might begin to believe a sense of our own goodness. But when we're looking at the holy God of heaven and earth, at his beauty and holiness, at his goodness, at his, at his perfectness, at his, at his perfection, at his righteousness, we can't help but begin to see how we fall short, how we don't measure up. And that insight keeps us low. It keeps our eyes from being raised up too high. We depend wholly and completely upon his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And that's at the heart of our gospel in the church is that God has come to do this kind of work to deal with our sin. And so then those of us who know Jesus and have come to know his life and his forgiveness, we can be free to acknowledge our sin, our crookedness, the fact that we're bent. And not just in a perfunctory manner. It's easy sometimes to say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner, but really to feign Humility, because we're at, in fact, we're really proud. But in a heartfelt way, we're, we're liberated. As Christians, we're liberated to be so honest about our brokenness and our sinfulness. Because we know the remedy. We know the gift. We know the Lord. The third statement in verse 1 is, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This is a, a lack of self-assertion. Maybe the opposite of what we're trained to do in our culture. We are trained to take the higher place whenever we can. There's some quote, I, I can't remember who said it. Always take the lower place unless God makes it otherwise impossible to do so. And David says, look, I'm not asserting myself. You might remember from his own life that he was unwilling to put his hands upon the Lord's anointed Saul. Despite the fact that King Saul was persecuting David and making his life difficult and trying to kill him, David would say no. 
I'm staying in the place that the Lord has assigned to me. I'm running the race, he says, that God has set before me, not the race of my own choosing. You know, thinking about this, of not occupying myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, makes me think of Job. That great book in the Old Testament that wrestles with the problem of suffering. Because Job wants an answer. He wants to know why he's suffering. And asking the question why I want to tell you is actually a good and legitimate question for for us to ask. The Psalms are full of that question being asked of God. So there's nothing unholy or wrong about asking that question. But you'll notice if you follow the book of Job that Job never gets an answer. It's too great and too marvelous for him to know the cause or the, the reasons behind his suffering. But what does he get? He gets the Lord revealing himself to him at the end of the book. Saying, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, you are not God. You are a human being. You are a limited creature. You must stay in your place. But you know me, the one who holds your suffering and your life in the palm of my hand. And to know God is an answer in a way. For all of the mysteries that are too great for us to ever understand or to know. Job is brought into that place of humility. It's good for us to ask questions. My kids, as they've grown up, have asked a lot of hard questions about the Christian faith. And I always respond by saying, that's a great question. God is so glad that you're asking that question. And then I usually kind of skip around the question because it's a hard question. God wants us to ask questions. We're called to learn and to know and to seek him. We're called to, to dig into his word. But listen to the prayer of one of the greatest theologians of the church's past, Anselm, in the 11th century. He says, I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them, but I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. There's a chastenedness to that prayer, a sense of knowing our place, not things too great or too marvelous for me. Chesterton wrote in his classic work, Orthodoxy, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the, the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. When we try to take a place that isn't our own, we begin to self-destruct. Do we accept our, limit, our limits, our finitude, our dependence, Again, if we're only looking around at others, we may forget our place. But if we look and live before God, if we take our place before God, if we gaze upon him and are aware of our creator and redeemer of his holiness and power, then this leads us to accept our limited position in life, that we are but grass that withers or flowers that fade. We are deeply exalted. Don't misunderstand me. We were created by God in his image at the apex of creation, but we are not God. And we get into great trouble when we attempt to be that. And our pride is what makes us begin to play as if we are God and to think that we are. No, we are exalted in his image, but we are humble under his sovereign rule. It is no wonder that Jesus begins his greatest sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he teaches us that we cannot enter that kingdom unless we become like a child. I do not consider things too marvelous, too great for me. We walk in humility. And this leads us then to verse 2 and to trust, a second point. Because after David affirms humility, he tells us that he has calmed and quieted his soul. And we should not miss the organic link between verse 1 and verse 2. To live a proud, arrogant, self-assertive life is to invite all kinds of turmoil and turbulence in our lives. 
The Vuelta just began yesterday, the Tour of Spain, the third of the three grand tours in professional cycling. And those who know cycling know that leading the pack means that you break the wind. There is more, more turmoil and effort expended if you're at the front. But those who fall in behind, those who take the lower place, those who draft, they have smoother air to deal with. When we are concerned with getting ahead, with being out in front, with being ahead, with having the top position, with stacking our, up ourselves to everyone else, this leads to all kinds of turmoil and unrest, to that turbulent air in the soul. David Pallison, who was a biblical counselor out of Westminster Seminary, he's passed away, but he wrote an article in 2000 in the Journal of Biblical Counseling about Psalm 131. And he talks about the ladders of pride that lead to nowhere. And he mentions ladders of achievement, acquisition, appetite, and avoidance. As we try to climb, whether we succeed or we fail, we are opening the door to the noise and turbulence that disturbs so many of our souls. There is a genuine connection between verse 1, David's confession of humility, and verse 2, David speaking about his calmed and quieted soul. There is rest and contentment and peace available for those who trust in the Lord and in his sovereignty in our lives. Who entrust whatever it is that we're walking through today. Whatever it is that might be turning you up on the inside to his sovereign care. It is the surrender of our lives before this God in trust the taking of our place under his sovereign hand that leads to the calm and quiet soul. The metaphor that's used here is of a weaned child. And we all know the young child's demand for milk from the mother's breast. It's incessant. And this is what keeps young moms up throughout the night, particularly with newborns. There's a demand and an urgency to this need. But after the time of weaning, and this is the picture that we're given here, the child can sit on the mother's lap and take rest and comfort in the mother, contented, without a demand for milk. And that's the picture of a surrendered, calmed, and quieted soul. We do not demand from God. We are content with him and what he gives to us and even with what he withholds from us because he doesn't withhold himself. He gives us himself. And there is a rest and a contentment and a quietness of soul that he invites us into to be satisfied with the gift of himself at peace. Not clamoring or crying or demanding or rooting as an infant would, but as a weaned child, quiet and at rest. This kind of calm and quiet isn't possible when pride rules in the heart whether in strong forms or, or weak ones, when we have succeeded and gotten ahead or when we haven't and we're riddled with insecurity and self-loathing and self-pity. This causes great turbulence in our lives. We're trying to be someone. We're trying to outdo all of the other people in life or in our career field. I can't remember, I didn't get to watch as, many, uh, as much of the Olympics as I might normally have because we were on vacation, but it was one of the Olympic races uh, after it was finished, one of the American run runners had finished in what I would call the worst place possible, which is fourth place. And, uh, and it was clear, it was, it was an interesting moment because it was clear that he was just devastated. That so much of 
all that he had worked for was to come and, and get a medal, and he'd missed it just by one position. And he got up for that post-race interview that they do on NBC, and he just couldn't speak to the reporter because he was so devastated. And the reporter's like, we have your family here on the screen. And he looked down on the screen, and all he could say was, I'm sorry. And it was just kind of poignant. It was, and I don't know that that's where he stayed. Obviously, there was a lot of emotion in that post-race moment. But it felt like it was an indicator of something that I think we can all experience, right? That we're climbing and clawing and scrapping and trying to get somewhere. And if we just don't make it, we feel like we're just a failure. That we are only the sum total of our accomplishments. And only if we can get on the medal stand does our life count. This was contrasted tremendously for me by Daniel Mahalski's response at the U.S. Olympic trials where he placed fourth in the steeplechase. Daniel is a friend of our own Damian Longs and Damian sent me his post-race interview several weeks ago and it was absolutely amazing. It was full of gratitude and joy as he stood there and talked about finishing fourth place and missing the Olympics and the opportunity to go to Tokyo. He praised his opponents who got first, second, and third. He gave thanks for his parents and all they'd poured into his life. He spoke about his wife and how much she had supported him in his journey. And he was just 100% content with what God had given to him, which was a fourth place finish at the U.S. trials. It was a stark contrast. One fourth place soul was devastated. The other was calmed and quieted because he was living before the living God. I wonder where you are this morning in your soul. Do you feel like you're getting fourth place and it's just not enough? And all you can do is say that you're sorry? Or is there a sense in which you know, as David did, that it is the Lord himself who is your reward, who is the one who brings all that you're longing for, and you can be content with the lot that he has given to you in your life, even if it's fourth place. Just a sense of I'm privileged to be his son. I'm privileged to be his daughter. I'm privileged to get to serve him in whatever way that he sees fit. Lord, I don't lift up my eyes to things too great and too marvelous for me. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. So is my soul within me. There's this contentedness in David's pen here. And this then moves us to our third and final point, which is about hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David moves from this picture of life before God, of humility and trust, to this final word of no longer is this an intimate prayer, but suddenly he's turned into an exhortation. And this exhortation in verse 3 is the same as verse 7 of Psalm 130. And often these psalms get paired together because that was the, the same words there. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Put your hope in this God who loves you and knows you. And when we hear the word Israel, what we should hear in this text is not ancient Israel. We should hear, oh, people of God. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you've repented and believed and trusted in him with your life, you're a part of these people. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. You've been adopted into his family by faith. You belong to him. You are beloved. Oh, Israel, beloved ones, children of God, hope in the Lord. Put your hope in him, not in your accomplishments or your gifts or your effort or your, your, your industry, but put your hope in him, the one who sent his son into the world to rescue you, to deal with the reality of your sin, to bring about a genuine forgiveness and new life that you could enjoy what you were always created to enjoy. Put your hope in this one. Well, how could I hope in him, you might say? Well, we hope in him because his son not only died on the cross, 
And that's at the heart of the Christian faith. But he rose from the dead. And he lived and walked among his disciples after his resurrection. And there is that certainty and sureness to our hope such that the author of Hebrews can say that our hope is now a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. How much better it is, David would say, to put your hope in that one who's conquered death and sin. Who's promised that one day he will finish the good work that he has begun in you. Could you say with Paul this morning, as he says in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is our hope as Christians. That is the invitation, perhaps to those of you who don't yet know Jesus, to come into that hope and know the fullness that we get to enjoy and experience of a God who will guarantee that one day everything will be taken care of. There won't be anybody in fourth place one day. But we'll all enjoy his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our great hope, our steadfast and sure anchor of the soul. And David says, hope in this from this time forth. Now, put your hope there. Live before him now. Take your place under him now and forevermore. I often think, you know, a lot of us put our hope in our own efforts. We put our hope in our brain or our body or our prospects at work. We put our hope in a lot of things. But I often like to think about the fact that what are we going to put our hope in when we're facing the end? Maybe when we're on our deathbed. Maybe some of you are close to that place even now. The thought of hoping in my abilities or my uh, intellect or whatever it might be for us in that moment is foolish, isn't it? Those things can't stand in that day. It's God alone in whom we rest. It's God alone in whom we put our hope. And that's the exhortation of this psalm, is to put your hope in this God who will not fail you, who deeply loves you, loves you more than you could ever imagine, who has brought his son into the world to redeem you, and who has raised him from the dead to demonstrate that your longing for life is actually the deepest thing about you. It's, it's in tune with who God is and what his universe has been made to be, which is a place of abundant, never-ending life. Put your hope in him, David said. So there's humility, a trust, and a hope. Three things that all of us desperately need. Three things that come from living before God, from being in his presence, from acknowledging his power and authority, his love and his mercy and his forgiveness in our lives. Back to your soul for a moment. How is your soul this morning? Is it full of turbulent air? And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that if, that if it is, that you are lacking in faith. Obviously, if you read the Psalms, there's lots of times when David himself is in tumult and crying out from that place. But do you know the living God is before you? Do you understand that your life is lived before his presence and that that brings you to this place of humility, of trust, and ultimately of hope that can be a genuine anchor for your life. Imagine perhaps for a moment what your life, what my life might be like if we were marked by these three things more and more. Imagine you're seated here with one another as a body, the body of Christ at Park Street Church. Imagine what we would be like as a community together if our lives were marked by humility in our relationships by looking at the log in our own eye, by trust, by a sense of contentment with what God has entrusted to us in our particular role and gifts, and by a, 
an unquenchable hope that one day God is going to make everything new. What a people we can be. That is our invitation from the grace and mercy of the God who made us. It is to come into this place where our souls are quieted and calmed and to be marked by humility, by trust, and by hope. Let's pray. God, our Father, we cry out to you to be merciful to all of us gathered here. And we confess our pride. We confess our trust in ourselves. And we confess that we most often place our hope in our own efforts. Forgive us, O oh God, for forgetting you. We thank you for this short but powerful song. Thank you for your word, which reminds us of your presence. Oh Lord, please humble us, calm us, and be our hope. For your glory, we pray. I pray that you do that work in each of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.